Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and today is Thursday the 18th of January. And this episode, we will focus on the Houthis of Yemen. I'm delighted to be joined today by our guest, Inbal Nisim Lufton, who is a lecturer at the Department of History, Philosophy and Judaic Studies at the Open University in Israel. And she is also a research fellow at the Forum for Regional Thinking. Inbal, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the, uh, the, the, the meat of the discussion and discuss the, uh, the Houthis, I'm just cognizant that uh, the Yemen plays a very significant role in Jewish history. So I wondered if we could start and you could just briefly outline the, the long-standing Jewish connection with Yemen. Well, the Jewish Yemeni community dates back to the antique history of, uh, of Yemen. Some say you can find Jews in Yemen probably within um, 100 BC or the first century. Others say that you cannot find real evidence to support that there were, that there were Jewish communities before the third century. But most researchers, I think, agree that somewhere between the 4th or 5th century, Jews reached high levels in the Hemiar pre-Islamic um, kingdom, and some of the elite of that kingdom uh, actually converted to Judaism. That, of course, uh, ended at the beginning of the 6th century, and after that, Islam was presented into the south parts of the Arabian Peninsula. So, anyway, you look at it, it's deep-rooted community, which is a part of the society of Yemen for many, uh, many hundreds of years. And of course, that all came to an end uh, around the, the establishment of the State of Israel. Well, most, most Jews uh, immigrated to Israel from Yemen uh, during uh, 1949 and 1950. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, about 10% of them came to Israel. That is not known for, for many of us. Uh, it was a very difficult journey. Um, but, but most of them, yes, as, as soon as the state of Israel was established, most of them came to Israel. And there are now no, no Jews left at all in Yemen when we talk about modern day? Maybe very few. We're talking about less than, than a few dozens. Uh, some of them, ever since the civil war in Yemen in the end of 2014 and the beginning of 2015, converted uh, either converted to Islam. Some of the families were able to leave Yemen with the help of, of international uh, organizations. Um, and there are very few at the moment. Most of them were brought to the capital, Sana'a, as soon as the civil war started. And they were protected by the central government in a compound near the American embassy, but there are very few left at the moment. If we can start at the beginning with the story of the Houthis, what is their origin? Where do they come from? So the Houthis are uh, at their core, a revival, a religious revival movement of Shia Zaidi Islam, which is a sect of Islam different from what we know uh, in Iran and Lebanon. And they started operating in the early 1990s from their northern uh, province of uh, Sada. And they were hoping to revive Zaidi Islam as it was uh, marginalized 
by the central government for years, ever since the beginning of the 60s. And they also criticized the central government not allocating enough resources to their district, not enabling them to operate and to develop the, the province. They were also exposed to Wahhabi influences uh, near Sada, and they uh, saw that as a threat especially for the younger generation of Zaydis, as they uh, feared they were converting into uh, Sunni Islam. And so what they wanted is to return the vitality, if you like, of Zaydi Islam. And also, it's not just the religious dimension of their actions, but also you have an issue of uh, north, periphery, uh, tribal uh, versus the Sana'a, the capital and the, the center, they feel marginalized in terms of political power or in economic terms. It's also, it's religious, it's economic, it's uh, social. Uh, you have many dimensions to that. And to add to this, uh, it's not only the uh, Wahhabi influence, but also what they saw as the president at that time, Ali Abdullah Saleh, siding with the Americans, and as we can witness the radicalization of the Houthis later, this dimension uh, would be more evident in their ideology. In any case, as they start in the 1990s, they operate mainly in both ways. The first one is to establish um, youth clubs, what they call the believing youth, Shabab al-Mumin, which were uh, networks of both educational activities and social welfare as an alternative, if you like, to the Wahhabi operations in, in Sada or near Sada. And the other one is to try and influence and promote Zaidi interests through the political system by um, having their own political party by the name of uh, Al-Haq, the truth, they uh, tried that during the 1990s. One of the leaders, uh, Hussein al-Houthi, which was also one of the founders of the Believing Youth Clubs, was even a minister for a while. But then the political experience did not prove itself. They were hoping to promote uh, political issues and social issues and economic requests uh, from the central governments, but it did not go very well. And then we see them going back to the... Um, the youth clubs, and most of those young people who joined those clubs would later prove to be their initial force of fighting against the central government. In any case, the situation and the tension over both their, what they see as their marginalization process on the one hand, and the Saleh administration, administration siding with uh, America, uh, we, we would see a radicalization of the Houthis after September 11, and then mainly after the invasion of the United States to Iraq in 2003. And soon after that, we already see uh, clashes between uh, military and tribal forces from the central government on the one hand, and then uh, Houthi fighters from the other hand. That would be the opening accord of what we call the Sada Wars. You would have six rounds of wars between 2004 and 2010. In the first war, uh, Hussein al-Houthi was also killed and one of his brother took his place. We know him today as one of the leaders, Abdel Malik al-Houthi, 
Um, and so after those wars ended, there was no real uh, ceasefire that was kept. And soon later, the Houthi revolt, if you like, uh, incorporated into Yemen's Arab Spring. So where did this uh, kind of this social or political movement, what was that transition for it to become a militia? Um, what was that practical development and where did they get all these these weapons from in the initial stages? Well, I think it's it's no secret that you would have no problem obtaining weapon in Yemen, if you like. There are so many illegal weapons in, in Yemen, even before the war. It is very common to see very young men with rifles, with guns. And so you have a, a very thriving black market of guns. So it, it's not much of a problem. So this is the first source of, of weapon that they can have for their new uh, young soldiers, most of them in the beginning from the Believing Youth Clubs. Uh, but then later, when as the Arab Spring evolves, you have elections and you have a big national dialogue with the help of the um, Saudi Arabia and the GCC uh, countries. But then that all fails. Also a federation plan that is suggested during that national dialogue, but it ends at the beginning of 2014 with not much success. And then the Houthi delegation to those talks already announced that it's leaving the, the table of negotiations because one of their members of the delegation was murdered. So in protest of that, they left the conversation. And as soon as they found out that they were unable to achieve their goals through um, diplomatic and political efforts, they increased their military power. And as they advanced from the north of Yemen, from Saada towards Am Am Amran, and then uh, through the coast over uh, the districts of Al-Hudaydah, and reached the capital Sana'a at the end of 2014 and the beginning of 2015, you could already see that they had the help of President Saleh, the former enemy that they fought for many years uh, before. And Saleh brought to the table uh, connections and uh, military powers that were loyal to him personally, and also a lot of funds, and they used these connections. And so their military capabilities grew with that. And after they took uh, over Sana'a, they could use the military uh, facilities and had more weapon. Later on, probably since 2009, maybe a little earlier or a little later, they also uh, get help from Iran. And for those of us not following Yemeni politics so closely, could you just give us a brief situation update where things currently stand? It is very much divided, fragmented, fragile. We can see that since the beginning, uh, we had the Houthis on the one hand and the ousted government, central government, uh, on the other hand, with many other tribal forces and also the Southern movement, which was calling for the independence of the South, and also its members of what we call the Muslim Brotherhood. All of them were part of the coalition against the Houthis. And then at the beginning of 2015, we have Saudi Arabia joining and forming a coalition of other countries, mainly Arab countries, along with the United Arab States. All of them fight in order to, what Saudis uh, say, return the internationally recognized government. 
and also to stop the Houthis from uh, taking over all of Yemen as they see them as an Iranian proxy. But then as the war uh, proceeded, Saudis found out that they were unable to win it and they were unable to achieve any of the two main goals that they set for themselves. And what we see is since April 2022, a ceasefire, which first was under the supervision of the UN, but then after six months, it officially ended, although it was maintained largely up until now. And Saudis and Houthis started negotiations. At first, it was unknown. It was a secret. And then after a while, it was out in the open. Uh, formal talks were held by Houthi delegations with the Saudi administrations. And even a, a Houthi delegation was invited to Riyadh. And then a Saudi delegation visited Sana'a. So this is something that you wouldn't think of at the beginning of, of the war. And and Saudis now realize that they have to turn to the diplomatic route in the hope of uh, of achieving peace and being able to uh, end their involvement in Yemen. So what we see now is very long negotiation talks, uh, no final agreement yet. Saudis keep saying that they are very close to closing the deal. But uh, we see months go by and nothing substantial uh, done about it. And so this is the situation. This is the situation now. Saudis want their, their foot out of Yemen completely. They are willing to give many concessions in order to achieve that in terms of changing the borderline uh, with Yemen, especially in the in the Western part, in terms of allowing ships and flights to international uh, Sana'a airport to go in. And so many other concessions in, in terms of uh, paying public uh, workers, civil servants in, in Yemen, their salaries, humanitarian aid, you name it. But still, there is no final agreement. Even though after this very long, the longest ceasefire, even after the long ceasefire, UN still pronounce Yemen to be the worst humanitarian uh, crisis area in the world. So I was, that's what I was going to ask about next, actually, because for the last decade or so, the the connotation in the Western media when one thinks of when one thinks of Yemen is really the issues of lack of medicine, um, reports of starvation, of, especially amongst the children population. Is that still is that still an issue uh, internally um, for, for Yemen as a whole? It is perhaps less severe. If we were talking about two and a half, three years ago, about 80% of Yemeni population out of 30, 35 million people in need of very basic help, that very basic needs uh, are not met. We're talking about uh, two thirds of the population at the moment. So we cannot say that the ceasefire did not do uh, did not help some of the the pressing problems of Yemen, but still, if you look at it, the destruction of infrastructure uh, during the many years of war is so severe, it will take decades to repair, and still, the the continuous uh, crisis is something that you can see, even though uh, warfare is is no longer there or 
you have very limited um, areas in which the fighting goes on. I mean, it's it's for a um, for, it's for Israeli eyes, I suppose. If I can uh, can transpose, it's incredible that such a a poor country, a war torn country internally, yet has such sophisticated weapons. And I'm now kind of connecting what we've seen over the last three months and the launching of uh, sophisticated ballistic missiles and advanced UAVs towards to, towards Israel. Uh, I mean, how did they develop that? Uh, and what is that? Where, where did that connection with Iran come from? So I think it's interesting to see that the uh, alliance or cooperation or connection to Iran is relatively uh, new. Probably up until 2009, Iranians were more interested in keeping good uh, terms or keeping a good accord with the central administration in Sana'a other than with a group of rebels in uh, North Yemen. Somewhere around 2009, probably 2010, the, the sixth war of Sada, the last one, uh, which also involved Saudi Arabia, the Iranians started to think that there might be something with this group that may help Iranian interests. And this way of thinking probably strengthened by the Arab Spring and the actions of um, the Houthis. And then when they took over uh, Sana'a in 2014, it was quite evident that they have the power and that they were a very central player in the balance of power in Yemen. And so uh, although Iranians uh, would not admit it, they smuggled weapons into Yemen, they helped with instruction. Any aspect you can think of in warfare, Iranians helped with, I think, many of the advanced military capabilities that we see today uh, of the Houthis are a result of the alliance with uh, Iran. They were not able to perform this way if it weren't for Iran. And she helped them in any possible way that you can imagine in that area. And how would you currently define um, the uh, the Houthi relationship with Saudi Arabia? Well, it is very fragile at the moment. So they've been fighting ever since the beginning of the civil war. I mean, if it if in 2014 and the beginning of 2015, up until March, it was an internal Yemeni civil war, as soon as the Saudis join in and form their coalition, it is at an original uh, dimension. And so Saudi, it is not the first time that Saudi Arabia is involved in Yemeni issues, but this was very different than what we've seen before. And I think that what we see now, after a very long time of negotiations with the Houthis, is already a, a Houthi win. Because you would not imagine a few years ago that Saudi Arabia would admit to having direct talks with the Houthis and even considering seeing them as a member or a power to be dealt with and to negotiate with. But um, as the Saudis claim to have almost a done deal with the Houthis, uh, we did not see an agreement, a full agreement of ending the war between the two uh, powers. The situation now is very fragile and is threatening to pull once again the Saudis into uh, Yemeni territories and might even renew 
the war within within Yemen, which is again the the shift that we see from an internal civil war into a regional dimension of the war, and now what the Houthis are doing in relation to with relation to the war in Gaza would have implications potentially at home to renew the the civil war with Saudi Arabia, and I think that. As much as the Houthis don't want that, the Saudis don't want that even more. Sure, that makes uh, that makes sense. So this is kind of, I suppose, comes to the, the the crux of it. Certainly, from a from an Israel perspective, that where does that anti-Israel agenda come from? And and would you would you kind of as a, the other side of the coin, being anti-Israel and being supporting the Palestinians and Hamas, kind of which came first, and how would you categorize that uh, that axis relationship? Well, as we said, radicalization after 2003 uh, within Houthi ranks brings us to the um, flag that we all know that says, uh, God is great, death to America, death to Israel, curse on the Jews, uh, victory to, uh, to Islam. So you can see that part of the ideology and the interpretation indeed of what they see as Zaidi revival uh, not only in religious terms, but in political terms as well, you can see that as part of their uh, ideology. But also with that comes a pro-Palestinian sentiment. Uh, and we've seen them over the years, not just saying that, but also willing to act on it. For instance, there was a deal of uh, prisoner uh, exchange uh, in 2009, suggested deal. It it didn't work out in the end. The Houthis claimed that they were willing to release Saudi prisoners, including Saudi military prisoners, in return of um, releasing about 60 prisoners with Palestinian nationality uh, held in Saudi Arabia. So they were willing to waiver the right to bring back their own uh, people in order to help the Palestinian cause. That would give you an idea on their commitment, not just in terms of declaring, but also in terms of acting on behalf of the Palestinian cause. And by, by launching the recent attacks against Israel, both in terms of ballistic missiles and, and UAVs, what are they trying to achieve there? I think we have to look at it not only uh, through the eyes of their alliance with Iran, although it serves both sides' interests, but also the gains for them uh, within Yemen and the region and their Palestinian uh, brothers. So you have, first of all, a lot of support that they're gaining both within Yemen, even from their biggest opponents and outside in the Arab and Muslim world for helping the Palestinians. And you can see that for them, it, it is very embarrassing maybe for Saudi Arabia or Egypt or other countries that they're not doing enough for the Palestinians, but the Houthis do. So it helps them perhaps magnify their uh, part in, in in the Arab and Muslim world by doing that. So besides support and besides allying with the Iranians to which they are committed up to a certain point, it would also help them to set aside the pressing matters and problems of running the Houthi state, if you like. 
the situation within Yemen, the humanitarian situation, they can all say we're fighting now for the Palestinians. We cannot deal at the moment with this because there are more pressing matters. And just a final question, I mean, what more can the international community do? Well, if to believe what the Houthis say, uh, then it's not going to affect them very much. And they also say it would it would be like a boomerang. Uh, it would go back and harm uh, the U.S. and other and other forces uh, within the the coalition. As long as the the U.S. and its coalition would use airstrikes, uh, but very limited uh, force, and then they would have to make sure that food and medicine and fuel goes into the ports of Al Hudaydah in order, which is a lifeline for, for the people in in Houthi territories. We didn't say that, but about 70 or 80% of Yemeni population is within the boundaries of, of the Houthi state, if you if you like. So they are very they have very limited I think tools when when they deal with the Houthis in that term. Uh, perhaps it gives them more options in terms of stopping finance rod that that is supposed to uh, to arrive at Houthi hands and and arrest maybe people who are affiliated with the organization. And it would throw them even closer into the arms of of Iran. There may be no option but to do that. But I'm not sure how successful this would prove. And just sorry, one last question. Is there any prospect of a, of that reopening and the other government kind of seizing back control from the Houthis or is that not realistic? Well, many parts in the South are held not by forces of the internationally recognized government, but of the Southern uh, separatist movement or by Islah, Muslim Brotherhood of Yemen forces and, and others. So... I think it's going to be a problem. And and some of those forces were supported by the United Arab Emirates and not Saudi Arabia. So that's also something to, to remember. But I think that what the central government was not able to obtain in terms of territory uh, by now from the end of 2014, it will not gain suddenly at the beginning of uh, 2024 unless you have a very big coalition helping them and the preparing to pay the cost of of such such operations in terms of the humanitarian uh, crisis. Fascinating, um, Imbal. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thank you.